thank you so much for being on the uh, podcast. It's an absolute honour to have you. I'm not sure about that, Ben, but it's very, very nice to be here. Thank you very much for asking me. <laughs> you, you've, you've been described as uh, you know, ha having an awe-inspiring command in court, uh, having a first-class legal mind. W was this the destination you always aimed at? What, did you always want to be a lawyer? Um, I'm afraid the honest answer to that is um, probably not. I'm, I'm not one of these people who can claim that I always had this great vocation either to come to the law or to be a criminal barrister. Uh, I think the reality of the position is I sort of fell into a law degree for want of um, anything more obvious to do. And when the time came to deciding between, on the one hand, the bar and on the other hand, the solicitor's profession, uh, at the age of 20, I was probably a bit more in love with the sound of my own voice than I should have been. I was a, I was a student debater rather than a student lawyer. But then look at you now. What happened? What kind of honed your focus? I, I think the honest answer to that is I became interested in the law when I started being a lawyer. Uh, I uh, Still to this day I attend law lectures um, and find myself after about 10 minutes losing the will to live um, hearing some academic lecturer talking about ridiculous scenarios which would never arise in real life. Whereas when you're, when you're a practicing lawyer you are applying the law to real facts or applying facts to, to the law. And um, I began to enjoy the law as soon as I started in practice. Was uh, it the real world application? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So, so what, it was a leap. Uh, Did it and then by pure fluke you liked it? I had, I had a feeling that I was in, going to enjoy being a barrister. I had a feeling that I was going to enjoy um, talking in court and I did. Um, although it's right to say in my earlier years I didn't do quite as much of that as perhaps I would have liked because I started off on the civil side rather than on the criminal side, which, which was actually a mistake for me. Why? Um, uh, why did I make that choice? Uh, I think I was calculating and decided that one particular set which had offered me a pupillage gave me the best chance of getting a tenancy at the end of 12 months and I was slightly dazzled as, as well by the fact that the head of those chambers was George Carman who was the, um, the greatest figure at the English bar at the time. Um, but the reality is it, it probably wasn't the best place for me to start because it was, a, it was very much a civil practice and um, uh, that isn't what I've ended up doing. I had an opportunity about seven or eight years in to change direction from civil law to crime and uh, I grabbed it and um, I thank my lucky stars that I made that decision, um, albeit that I started seven or eight years later probably than I should have done. How did that opportunity present itself? Um, it arose because there was one member of those chambers who was doing criminal work. Um, he was uh, effectively a full-time prosecutor for what was then Customs and Excise. Uh, he was made standing counsel to Customs and Excise, which meant that he would be constantly leading a junior in all of his cases. Um, I happen to know, because I've discussed it with him since, that he asked about five or six members of those chambers whether they would like to become his regular junior, and they all turned their noses up at it and said, no, no, we're, we're civil lawyers, we don't muck around in crime. Um, he then asked me as the seventh person, and I said, well, I don't know anything about it, but I'll give it a go. And I gave it a go, and I immediately loved it. I was very lucky with the first couple of hearings I did for him, uh, both of which turned out to be absolute bun fights, and I was in my element. And I remember going back at the end of the first criminal case I'd ever done um, to Chambers, and they'd sent um, another five or six briefs 
for, for the remainder of the week. And my clerk saying, I don't know what you've done today, Mr. Wallbank, but something's changed. <laughs> um, but uh, it, I mean, it really was a sliding doors moment. If any of those other people had said, yes, we fancy doing it, then I wouldn't have had that offer. And um, I'm not sure I'd even be at the bar today, if I'm actually honest, if it hadn't been for that moment. But what do you mean you love a bun fight? You, you like confrontation? You like the contest? Uh, I quite enjoy the confrontation, although hopefully not too often. I quite like the moments of drama when, when it does get a little bit confrontational. Um, it's not so much that. I, um, I, I, I do like advocacy. I do like the um, intellectual challenge, if you like, of trying to persuade either a judge on the law or 12 randomly selected members of the public on the facts. Um, I, as, as I say, I hope a little less confrontational as I've grown older and mellowed a bit than perhaps I was in my younger days. But uh, yes, I, in the end, it's advocacy. Adv advocacy is my sort of first love, and that is the reason that I get up in the morning. Really? And that's the reason why I really still enjoy the job you I've been doing. You spring out of bed. I do, really? I do. I, I count myself lucky to have found the job that I'm doing. I, I, I genuinely think that everybody on the planet, really, has something they can do and that they're suited to do. Um, I think our education system needs to be changed so that it's focusing entirely on identifying what talents people have and what makes them tick and, and what's the biggest contribution they can make. Um, I don't know whether I'm making a contribution, but I certainly enjoy what I do. And I, yes, I, I do get out of bed with the spring and I, and I do look forward to coming into work every morning, which is you know, a nice thing to be able to say. And at the end of the day, I say to myself, I can't believe they're paying me for this. And often they're not paying me very much, but, but it, it's, it's a nice feeling to have in a job you've been doing for 30 years plus. How do you feel your experience in the law has changed you as a person? Uh, as I say, I hope I've mellowed a bit. Uh, I suspect that I am now, um, what's, what's the best way of putting it? I'm, I'm very big on human frailty. Um, I think that we all need to have an understanding that every one of us is deeply flawed and broken and it's very often our flaws that define us. It's the way in which we cope with our flaws and the way that we address our flaws and cater for them. That's what makes us most human, I think. And um, I, I think a sort of search for perfection, which seems to be very much the order of the day in, in, in the modern day, is, is, um, is the route to madness, actually. I think we all need to know that we're, we're vulnerable and flawed and broken and, and, and we need to deal with it as best we can. How did that realisation come about? Is that something that happens with experience or have you seen in court, you've seen how people fall apart or in your own life? How did, you, how did that kind of epiphany come to you? Um, I suppose it's because I'm now constantly dealing with people whose lives are frankly on the rack. Um, uh, and, and very often they're people who would never ex have expected to find themselves in a criminal court. And often they're people who shouldn't find themselves in a criminal court. And uh, I mean, one of, the, one of the things that I like about the job that I do, without being too pompous about it, is it, it is in the end um, an opportunity to help people often when they're at their lowest and, and, and most in need of assistance. And, and if, you can, uh, if you can make a difference to people and, and hopefully um, get them out of that bind in which they find themselves and help them turn a corner, then it's, um, it's something that's very satisfying and, and, and I think worth doing. But how do you not get drawn in emotionally yourself? I know your experience, but you know, there's a lot of drama. I reckon. It's, it's a fine line. Um, I, I'm not one of these barristers who thinks that it's clever to affect a sort of disinterest 
are sort of rising Is above it. Is that a common it. thing? Uh, I'm glad to say much less common than it used to be, I think. Um, I think you have to be engaged with the client. I think, I think you actually have to be emotionally invested with the client. I mean, it's not always the case. Um, the sort of work I'm doing, I, I, most of my work is sort of fraud, corruption, money laundering, business crime. Um, I don't do as much of what we call the blood and guts as some of my colleagues. And no doubt if you're defending as, as you should, if you're briefed um, a, somebody charged with murder or all the most heinous offences, they're entitled to a defence. You, you do the best you can for them. But no doubt in those situations, any talk of um, emotionally engaging with your client is, is a bit of a nonsense. But, but I, I, I tend not to be dealing with those cases so much as your sort of business crime type cases. And um, I, I, I don't think I've ever had a client with, in whom I've been unable to find any redeeming features. I mean, some of them aren't always terribly easy to deal with. But, but you, you burrow away and you find some common ground and you find things that connect and um, I think that's an important part of the job uh, because in the end, if you don't appear to believe what you're saying on their behalf and have some belief in them, how are you going to persuade either a judge or a jury to, to, to believe in your case? Is there a case you wouldn't take? Or is that kind of no. against the antithesis? Uh, no, no, I think there genuinely isn't. Um, I mean, quite apart from the, your professional obligations, we have, as you know, we have the cab rank rule and if... If a case is within your expertise and within your competence and you are available to take it, um, uh, subject to some fine-tuning, basically you're under an obligation to take the case. And, and I think that the, the day when lawyers start picking and choosing the cases they're prepared to take, especially where it's based on some assessment of the guilt or innocence of the client or some sort of moral judgment they're making about the, the crime with which the client has been charged, I think that's a a very sad day for the English law. I mean, the bottom line is, obviously the classic question is, how do you defend somebody that you know to be guilty? And the, and the, and the short answer is you don't, unless they tell you that they're guilty. And if they tell you that they're guilty, you actually can't defend them except in very, very limited circumstances, which I don't need to go into. You can mitigate on their behalf in terms of sentence, but you don't defend them on a sort of not guilty plea. If they don't tell you they're guilty, if they're maintaining their innocence and they're telling you that they didn't do it, then, then it is not your job to be judge and jury and to make that decision on the basis of your reading of the evidence. And I, I cannot tell you then the number of cases in which I've been involved in which on a first reading of the evidence you think it's completely overwhelming. The client obviously did it. You still, because they say they didn't and they want to maintain their guilty plea, go ahead and defend them. And then as the trial develops and as the evidence is tested in court, a very, very different picture emerges and you end up being completely convinced that the person that initially you thought was overwhelmingly guilty, actually they're not. And, and in a sense, those, those are the worst cases. It's, it's when you become, when you either start off being convinced of your client's innocence or you, you become satisfied as the case develops and as the trial progresses that your client either is or even worse, may be innocent. It's almost the cases where you're in doubt that are the worst. That's when the pressure really ratchets up, I think. So if you then believe your client, yeah. and then it's a bad day for your client, do you then go home outraged? Or do you, can you park it? I mean, how do you park uh, it? I, I, I go home outraged perhaps less often than I used to. Um, I don't go home happy. 
I mean, it's never a good day when your client is convicted where you've been defending them on a not guilty plea. Um, I suppose the question of whether I'm in the slough of despond when a client is convicted probably depends on my view of whether I've done everything I can for them or whether I think I've missed a few points along the way. And the answer to that varies from case to case. Um, but it, no, it's never a good day when your client's convicted. Do you, um, did you create any certain habits uh, coming through the ranks uh, that uh, helped you up the ladder faster? Uh, any working habits, uh, perhaps? I, Working approach, mm. I'm not sure whether it's a habit, but a sort of principle, if you like. And again, it's going to sound terribly pompous, but I actually think it's very important, certainly doing what I do, and I suspect actually for, for most lawyers across most fields. But um, I am uh, absolutely convinced that you must treat every case as your last and uh, approach the job on the basis that you are only as good as your last case. Um, and I'm equally convinced that you must never, but never, um, sort of do an assessment of how much work you're going to do on a case, depending on the importance that you attach to it or the importance that you think that case is going to have for your career. That is, that is not the approach. You, you, you can't ration the work depending on how much you think you're going to benefit from it in terms of profile or how important you think it is to the client. The fact is every case is important, both to the lay client and the professional client. Um, and um, so that's, if you like, the, the slightly, dare I say it, sanctimonious way of putting it. The, the other slightly more um, uh, self-interested way of putting it is you never know which cases are going to afford you opportunities which you didn't expect them to. I mean, every new case is an opportunity certainly to learn something new. And I think every new case, and this isn't, perhaps doesn't reflect very well on me, but uh, every new case is an opportunity to impress or to shine. Um, and I cannot tell you, Ben, the number of seemingly insignificant small hearings I've been involved with or small cases I've been instructed in which have turned out to be the, the gateway or the door to something much bigger. I mean, I think that very, very early on in my career, so my, my criminal career, so seven or eight years into my practice, I was sent across the road to what was then room E101. It used to be the, the High Court judges in the Royal Courts of Justice dealing with uh, effectively appeals from refusals of bail by the Crown Court. They don't happen anymore, but they used to happen. And I was sent along by the prosecution, because my early work was all for the prosecution, um, to deal with the response to a bail application by a, an alleged drug smuggler and VAT fraudster. And um, I prepared the case fully, as you do and as you should. And the hearing went well and I got an eight month trial out of it. And it was, you know, that was as a, as a pretty young barrister. And that was probably, of all the cases I did in the early years, that was probably the making of my career at the criminal bar because um, who knows if I hadn't received that case, who knows whether I would have um, carried on doing that sort of work to the extent that I did and, and in the end it opened up lots of opportunities defending. I, I, I now mainly defend as it happens, but with a long career as a prosecutor up until 
six or seven years ago. What happens in your business? So if you lose a case, but it was unwinnable, yeah. do you get judged like a, a football team loses, or is it different? Uh, yeah, I have always found that the best cases are the cases which you lose well. Wow. <laughs> I, I, know that, I know that sounds daft, but um, the, the, cases that you're, the cases that you win, people tend to think, well, you're always going to win them, even if, if, if in fact you weren't. Um, the cases that you lose where you really haven't, where you've missed the points, obviously you're not going to benefit from those. But the cases which you lose, which really look like losers, but they really think you put in um, a sterling performance, those are the cases really? I have found that tend to, to give you the best opportunities. So who is looking and passing the word around? Did you see how you uh, pulled that off? Um, solicitors still come and see cases. Solicitors talk to each other, other barristers talk to each other, clients increasingly um, talk to each other. I mean, in the, in the, with the days of the internet and social media, clients mm. um, exchange views about barristers. Really? Um, so you, you are always on display. If you put in a bad performance, it's not going to go unnoticed. Generally speaking, I'd like to think if you put in a good performance, hopefully it will be picked up somewhere. Um, even if it's only reinforcing a view that people have of you before, you know, before you did that case. But um, as I say, you're only as good as your last case. What's the difference between you as a barrister and you as a QC? What, what are the kind of uh, the traits that, that separate the two, do you think? Perhaps in your own case or across the board? What, what makes, what's that next level up? What does it look like? What does it entail? Um, I think probably the key quality of being the QC, the silk, in a case is you need to have not only the ability which you need as a junior to um, really master all the detail, I mean, you know, masochistic appetite for hard work. <laughs> what does that you look know. like? What, that, that's that, means, that means a lot stomach. of hours, uh, that means a lot of all-nighters. <laughs> masochistic. Uh, mas masochistic is about right. Really? Um, and I th you need to be organised. I mean, Chronology is absolutely key in these cases. The dramatis personae, uh, every time you come across a new individual or a new company or a new entity, making sure that you've got that fixed in your mind. So, so an ability to assimilate really quite complex and detailed facts and then forget them equally quickly, actually, when you move on to the next case. That, that is crucial as a junior. Um, the masochistic bit is the junior bit. Ma well, the masochistic bit applies to both um, okay. because m my view is that when you take silk, you need to retain that ability. You need to retain the masochistic appetite. You need to gain the complete mastery of all the detail. And then you need to have the nerve to be able to step back and say, most of that I don't need. <laughs> um, and um, really to sort of then... Get above it and look at, take that bird's eye view and look for the stuff, you know, pick out the stuff that really matters and look for, for the, the points that are going to be decisive of the case and focus on those and have the ability and the willingness to actually not use and even to forget a lot of the detail that you've learned along the way. You, 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 you can't, you're not in the position to take a step back and say, right, this is the stuff that matters. This is the stuff I'm going to focus on. This is the stuff I'm going to major on and emphasise until you've got the full, full picture. So you have to, as a silk, I think you have to go one beyond. 
I'm not saying that you never have to as a junior. I mean, senior juniors are, are very often doing leading work. They're often leading more junior juniors. They're, they're very often having to make these big overarching tactical decisions about how to run the case, about what points to emphasise and so on. So it's, it's, a sort of, it's incremental, I think. But, uh, but when you take silk, every case is like that. What are those masochistic hours? What do they look like? Is it Oof. a 4am job or a 1am? How do you... The honest answer is, I think, very few days when you're not doing some work. Uh, quite a few days when you are working very long hours. What are they? Uh, long hours. Okay, well, um, I'm, I'm giving away more than I should now. Um, but I am a naturally idle man. And I have therefore disciplined myself over the years to do at least 12 hours of either work or sort of case management stroke admin type stuff during the day, um, which probably results in, I don't know, eight or nine hours of actual work on a case per day, certainly on weekdays and often at weekends. Um, and um, in fact, I, I know that I do that because I record all of my times, not because uh, I bill up on an hourly basis, because I generally don't, but it's the only way of disciplining myself to make sure that I get the work done because I am, and I'm not making this up, I am naturally idle and I have to school myself to do the necessary hours to, to, get, to get through the work. But so, so in a sense, I can answer the question, what do long hours generally look like? I mean, that may not sound that long, actually, but if you're doing that day in, day out, that's, that's quite a lot of work. And then... you you hours? More? Uh... I'd like to think it was more, but I think the reality is you're not doing that day in, day out. I mean, I remember discussing it with colleagues who claimed to me that they, week in, week out, they're doing 80 hours plus. I'm, I'm not sure that's physically possible. I think you'd burn out if you were doing that. I know, I know that um, uh, trainees in city banks and city solicitors are meant to be doing sort of 16-hour days for, for two years at a time. I've always been slightly sceptical about that, but on the other hand, I've never worked in a city solicitor or a city bank. So I don't know, but I, 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 think, I think if you're doing real sort of intellectually demanding work, if you're doing more mm. than those sorts of figures per week, I, I, I find it difficult to see how you would actually maintain that sort of level of work. Um, but there will be times when you are doing it in, in, in sort of ferocious bursts of work, when you, when you have to get on top of a case at very short notice or when some unanticipated point arises which needs a lot of work and a skeleton argument being done overnight or within the next two or three days. I mean, I, I, still, I, I still do all-nighters. Do you? I find them, and I, and I mean literally, work through the night. I'm, I'm Red Bull's best customer, I think. <laughs> um, and uh, I hate it now. I find it painful now. And I, and I try to manage my life so that I do it much less than I used to but sometimes it is unavoidable. Do you go home and do an all-nighter or do you stay? I tend to do it here. Do you? Yeah, because I, I tend to work in chambers anyway. I mean, I could, I could work at home much more often than I do, um, not least because I now live somewhat outside of London and actually, on any sensible view, I ought to be working at home, but I just find it easier to separate work from home. And um, I like coming into chambers, I've been in the same room at the same desk for 20 years. It's set up as I like. I see people I know and like. 
there are people who can bounce ideas off, the atmosphere is conducive to work. Um, so it's, it's slightly irrational, but I, I tend to come into chambers and work. Not, not everybody does. I mean, many people don't. Many people are set up so that they work from home, and it's a sort of constant discussion, I suspect, in most leading criminal chambers. Do we actually need the buildings that we occupy? And there's a debate that goes on between those who like to work in chambers and those who prefer to, to, to work at home. But I've always been one who prefers to work here. So then if you're doing an all-nighter, then do you then bleed into the next day or do you go, right, OK, that's time to go home now? Or? Uh, uh, yes. Sorry, yeah. yes to the first of your propositions. Um, I wouldn't put it as bleeding into the next day, but I mean... you. You, you just go straight through. I mean, I'm not saying you would necessarily keep going until late the next day, but you go until till the job is done. Is that because you're on a roll? Uh, I think adrenaline's got quite a lot to do with it. Um, sheer bloody necessity has quite a lot to do with it. Deadlines are deadlines. I mean, I, I'm not saying I, I, I'm not saying I've never missed a deadline. I've missed plenty of deadlines. There was a joke in my younger days that I saw a deadline as an aspiration rather than. <laughs> but one tries to do better on that as you get older. But I mean, the fact is. Um, you know, deadlines are there to be met, or at least <laughs> a document is overdue and, uh, and needs to be served now, then you just have to keep going until it's done. What, what would you say your biggest victories are? Mm. The ones that maybe kind of you thought, well, I've done myself proud, but yeah, that's quite right. Uh, I think surprisingly, they, they, they are probably not the high-profile victories in the big cases that people get to hear about or read about. For, for me, the big victories are um, where you think that you have managed to fulfil your role as a defence advocate of sticking up for the little guy against an overmighty state. And very often th those will be smaller cases. Um, so those are the big victories for me. I, I, I think where uh, where the position has looked grim from the point of view of the defendant, where you are either convinced of their innocence or at least harbour doubts about their guilt, where you don't believe that the prosecution have gone about it in the right way and you felt the need to wade in um, in defence of your client. Um, Sticking up for the little guy is the best way I can put it. And, and, and when, when you win those victories, I think that's when, when you go home um, probably most satisfied, probably after a detour via Chambers in order to have a drink with, with friends in Chambers and then go home with a sort of warm glow. But th those are the good days. Th those are the victories, I think. What about failures? Uh, does the concept of failure, has it, has it changed as you've evolved in this industry? Uh, it has for me, um, in the sense that I've effectively changed sides from being a, an out-and-out -out prosecutor to being mainly a defender. And they are, um, in a sense, they're two different jobs. Obviously, they, scare, they share many skills. Um, we're working under the same system. We still have our code of ethics and professional conduct. But uh, the old um, adage is that a prosecutor wins no victories and suffers no defeats. Um, I think that's less adhered to these days than perhaps it used to be. I mean, uh, uh, I did, I suppose, getting on for 18 or 19 years of solid prosecuting, often for the major prosecution agencies. And I am a great fan of the concept of the independent barrister in private practice 
um, bringing a degree of independence and objectivity to bear on the job of prosecuting. It doesn't mean that you don't prosecute tough. It doesn't mean that you, you're not on top of the brief or that you miss points. It certainly doesn't mean that you give points away that you shouldn't. But there is this sort of very old, um, some now regard it as rather twee, concept of the prosecutor as minister of justice. I think it's a really important concept and I always tried to adhere to it when I was prosecuting. Um, it didn't always endear me to those who were instructing me or perhaps more particularly to investigators and officers but I think they learn to appreciate it as they get to know you and as they see how the job works. Uh, so when I changed sides from prosecuting to defending the job felt different because because when you're defending, it, it is a different approach. I mean, you are striving for a result, subject to your ethical obligations and obviously complying with all the rules. But, but, but you are striving for a result in a way in which you really ought not to be in quite the same way, I think, when prosecuting. I mean, again, it sounds terribly pompous, but as a prosecutor, you are in effect seeking for truth. As a defender, you're not necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're making you're making tactical decisions to leave points alone because you don't think that uh, digging too hard in that particular corner is going to is going to um, produce stuff that's going to help your client. When you're defending, are you you're not on the defence? Are you on the attack? I mean, how are you looking at it? Uh, I often am. I, I mean, I, I I actually think that attack is often the best form of defence. Uh, th there are very, very different approaches. Uh, I don't think anyone takes an identical approach to their, their colleagues. I tend to be fairly interventionist. I probably say a little bit too much sometimes. Uh, I often find myself in multi-handed cases, not necessarily top of the indictment, so first defendant on the indictment, or maybe second, third, fourth defendant on the indictment, but often find myself leading the charge, not necessarily because I'm muscling in, but because uh, Others in the case will know the different personalities involved and will know that it's something that I'm willing to and might even be keen to do. Um, and so I often find myself taking the lead on, on sort of major points in a case, even though I'm not necessarily top of the indictment, as I say. Uh, I mean, uh, one of the great joys of the job, I think, is that by, by the time you reach my stage, I cannot go to a Crown Court in the land without bumping into people that I know and like. I can't really be instructed in a trial without there being some involvement by people that I've been for or against or co-defended with previously and who I know and like. And that sort of camaraderie is a terribly old-fashioned word, but it's, it's the best word to describe what I'm talking about. Um, that sort of sense of a, a common venture with others at the bar, whether prosecuting or defending, is something which I really value. And the way in which you get on with other people in a case, I think, is very important. The reason I mention it now is, you know, we often know each other, and we know what our strengths and weaknesses are. There will be some people who are absolutely brilliant at saying almost nothing, um, and I and I, I genuinely mean that. I'm not I'm not sort of damning with faint praise. To, to to be able to keep your head down and and play the sort of minimalist approach in a case is a real ability in itself. And there are why? why why yeah. Uh, what? Well, it can be it can be a terribly effective approach. Um, some people, I suspect, are better at it, better at it than others. Um, the the ability to keep your head down, only challenge what absolutely has to be challenged on the evidence, 
and then come up with an absolute barnstorming speech at the end of it without the jury thinking actually you played a fast one because you've kept your head down and then and then you come up with this astonishing speech at the end of it you know there's there's a real ability to that requires extraordinary confidence i imagine uh, it requires extraordinary confidence and and um massive judgment but yes enormous reserves of self-confidence yeah final few questions when, when you mm. became qc did you uh, did you think does one think this is it this is the top of the mountain or are there more mountains behind that mountain i'm afraid the honest answer to that is i did because i because for me it is i i um uh many of my colleagues who take silk have at least one eye on the um the comfortable leather upholstered benches of, of the judiciary. I don't. I, it's just not something that I've ever wanted to do. I'm very unusual. I don't even sit as a recorder as a part-time judge. Um, I'm not saying that I would never ever um, apply again. I did make an application I think about 20 years ago and did the world's worst job interview. Um, why? Uh, uh, and um, w why? Yeah, I, well, I, I remember being stumped by a question, what, what, would, you, what would you say are your greatest flaws? And I hadn't really thought in advance and there is a terrible silence which is not not the correct way to respond to that question in a job interview uh, I, and it wasn't that, that there weren't any I just, I just I was just a bit stumped by the question anyway I did a terrible interview and I remember getting the feedback um, get, got the form saying you haven't got it on this occasion but you'll be placed on a reserve list and you'll be considered for appointments on other circuits as and when they arise and if you want your feedback please phone the following number and a civil servant will give you your feedback so I phoned the number and I spoke to some very nice civil servant who spent about half an hour answering my questions and then at the end of the telephone discussion I said um, I see that I've been placed on a reserve list and that if any other positions um, come up you'll let me know when could I expect to hear about that and there was a silence and she said well, I wouldn't hold your breath, oh. <laughs> and and I and I have uh, that was I think about twenty years ago, and I have never reapplied, I'm, and I'm not saying never, um, because there are actually I think I, I, it's foolish of me not to have applied, because there is real value I think, um, in sitting part time as a judge and seeing the, the court from a judge's perspective, and the training courses are absolutely fantastic. Um, so, so, so there's much value, I think, in sit, sitting as a part-time judge, as a recorder. Um, I, I know that I don't want to be a judge full-time. And, and I, I have f fantastic friends at the bar to whom I'm in incredibly close, who have gone to the bench. I have enormous respect for them. Uh, they do an invaluable job. They do it brilliantly. So it's not a comment on that job. It's just not something that I want to do. So, so what is the end game then? You know, is it just to kind of, what's the fire that keeps you going? Uh, is it a principle? My, my relationship manager at the bank, um, uh, I, I, sorry, that's a terribly flip answer. No, but, no, I mean, the reality, no, the reality is obviously, to some extent that. Um, you never stop learning. Uh, you, you, you never, I never stop being fascinated by the cases that come to me. I never stop being fascinated by the, the, the solicitors with whom I deal and the, and the lay clients for whom I act. Um, I, I think for me the end game, uh, again this is going to sound ever so slightly holier than thou, but I have actually reached a stage where I'm trying very hard to try and give something back. I mean I, I do feel enormously 
privileged, I feel blessed really, to have done a job which I enjoy so much. Um, I've got an awful lot out of it, and I, and I have reached a stage in my life when I want to give a bit back, and I spend an increasing amount of time doing sort of educational type stuff, whether it's lecturing or whether it's arranging programs of lectures. I'm about to launch, as it happens, a program of, um, I think they're called vlogs, but sort of video casts. I'm passionate about making the criminal law um, more accessible, about demystifying the criminal law to lay people and to non-criminal lawyers and to young criminal lawyers on the way up. I think there are too many of us who um, try to make things more complicated and more mystical almost than they need to be. And I'm a, a passionate advocate of demystifying the process and getting people to understand why the rules are as they are and sometimes which rules need to change and how they might need to change. So um, I think the, the, the end game, as you put it for me, is hopefully bigger and better and more fascinating cases, but also um, perhaps more of a balance where I am doing that sort of work increasingly alongside my day-to-day um, -day legal practice. And my final question, what, what would the world's greatest lawyer look like to you as an abstraction? I'm going to say criminal lawyer because okay. I don't know about the other areas of law. Uh, the world's greatest criminal barrister would be a combination of a colleague of mine in Chambers who's I think an associate tenant in Chambers and a law commissioner, Professor David Ormrod, who has the most encyclopedic knowledge of the criminal law of anybody I've ever met. So a combination of uh, Professor Ormrod, perhaps with the brain, a brain the size of Lord Sumption, recently retired Supreme Court Justice, uh, the voice of Richard Burton, um, and the relatability and ability to keep the conversation going of Graham Norton. That would be a pretty good combination. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute honour. Real pleasure. Thank you nice so much. Nice to speak to you, Ben. Thank you. Bye-bye.